Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Welcome to Working Title. All right, well, ready? Let's do it, man. All right. Uh, Okay, well, Brandon, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to to do this with us. And so we'll just start uh, the way we start every podcast. And it's just simply, simply this, that, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves in, in certain social settings where the inevitable question comes up of, you know, what do you do? Um, And so how do you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a tricky one. My answer kind of changes over the years, you know, depending on who asks. But I think that the one of the quickest responses I've had is I'm an itinerant slaughterman. You know, <laughs> I, I drive around and I, I kill animals for people to eat. <laughs> um, it's that's that's actually kind of why we made up the word uh, meatsmith, because it kind of encompassed everything. And then we cure them, but then we also roast them, and hey, we also raise them, and we'll we'll roast them whole, we'll smoke them. It's like, what is there a word to encompass all of that stuff? And so that's when Lauren came up with meat smith. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm a mobile butcher, and I'm a farmer here, sort of. Farmer's like a really flattering term for what happens in my yard. <laughs> but we have a garden and some pigs and some ducks. And where where is here? I'm on Vashon Island in Washington State. Awesome. In Puget Sound, not not far from Seattle. And in addition to the mobile slaughtering, we've got the online Meatsmith membership. We put out a lot of instructional stuff uh, that's geared towards really enabling people to to do the stuff at home. Slaughtery and butchery has been really relegated to you know almost like these lab-like conditions, you know, these huge processing facilities. And originally they were, they were the prowess of the, the able and sagacious home cook. And that's kind of what, what I like to bring it back to. Yeah. So what makes your, you know, your approach unique? Um, like your, your philosophy as it pertains to, to the craft itself of, of being, you know, and if I, a, a meat smith or a butcher or however we want to put that. Oh man. Uh, I think that there's a lot of ways, you know, we, um, I think, you know, probably what it boils down to actually is I'm, I'm 100% okay, almost 100%, culinarily motivated. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really am thinking about the end product. And so part of the recipe of bacon for me, to make the bacon that I want to make, exactly how I envision it, you know, is it starts with what I'm feeding the pig and then even how I kill it. That's all actually part of the recipe. And... Unfortunately, those processes today on the larger scale have been divorced from the culinary ends. 
And like by culinary, I just mean, you know, your home kitchen. Like it's, right. it sounds simple, but it's, it's just forgotten these days. The system doesn't really allow for it, but really all of these livestock animals are geared towards the kitchen. That is their end. And I think so much of what has supplanted that is the commercial form, you know, right. The skinless, the boneless, the, the sterile looking, um, and the effortlessly e- easy ease of cooking, you know, has got to be obvious and everything that's in a deli case. And with that as the final cause of all livestock flesh, the whole process that leads up to that then is altered and changed to fit that end. And when you do that, I mean, it, that's just such a limited culinary vocabulary, you know, like the skinless and the boneless, mm-hmm. uh, the fatless, right? Um, that's, that's such a small, a small fraction of what animals can yield us for our, for our tables. Sure. Well, speak even more to the, to the fat. Um, I know that's a big part of, of, of how your approach is and, um, you know, and and that gets disregarded a lot by, by a lot of consumers. When, would you agree? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, um, the primary yield of a pig historically and even now is fat. That's what the pig gives us. And uh, again, this is how the whole process is affected from slaughter to there's fat removal because they skin pigs rather Mm -hmm. than uh, scalding and scraping them with leaves, all the subcutaneous fat intact. And then at the butcher shop, they trim more fat. And then at the grocery store, they trim fat again such that by the time the pig is makes it to the consumer, you know, over 50% of that carcass has been removed as somehow undesirable, you know, and maybe some of it makes it into sausage, which is good. But, um, yeah, man, the fat, the fat is where it's at. That, <laughs> that was, that was the goal for it, it, even our pig genetics. So even before the slaughter, like we breed pigs to be lean, green, fast growing machines, you know, lean and mean, really lean. And um, that's what pigs are today. Before that, pigs were grown for their fat. In fact, it was it was a rule you can read in a 19th century guide that if your pig can walk 200 yards at a time, <laughs> it's not fat enough. Wow. <laughs> And they're like, he's dead serious. Like, no, seriously, you're, it's a waste of pork. You need to have fat. You need to eat a lot more fat. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so how did you get here? I mean, there, you know, if I asked a lot of people, what do you do? We don't hear a lot of people saying that they're butchers. Like, and I think you have a unique path as far as even how you've arrived here. So give us a little bit about that path. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I grew up in suburban Southern California, completely estranged from the source of my food, totally. Um, And I did work at Whole Foods during my, uh, when I was getting my undergrad and graduate degree. And that's also right kind of when I met my wife, Lauren. And I guess for us, it was, we were both in academia, you know, she was studying theology and psychology. I'm an English Renaissance guy, so Shakespeare and John Milton. And uh, we were both finishing up our master's degrees thinking we're kind of like uh, toddlers a little bit and not and therefore, you know, not really equipped 
to go on to get the PhD and then continue teaching because that was my goal. Mm-hmm. I was just going to be an, an English professor for the rest of my life. Not just, you know, I think that would be awesome. <laughs> uh, but uh, I felt inadequate. I really felt like, you know, well, I could keep going and I could uh, publish the fa- on the fashionable topics for the influential journals and, and pursue that route. But when it comes down to it, I really love teaching and I feel inadequate to teach because I haven't really lived. Right. <laughs> I've been in school my whole life, you know, I've been in the ivory tower. And so I thought, okay, we'll just take a break. We both kind of wanted to take a break. And Lauren was getting disillusioned too, being a, a theology student. And she was seeing a lot of stuff sneak into theology departments that was uh, vicious in the old sense of the term, which was like, gee, you know, we kind of, we went down this path, particularly in in theology of studying Thomas Aquinas and virtue ethics. And there were a lot of professors that seemed okay with uh, abstract highfalutin theologizing, but not not actual daily virtue. And that just seemed like an inherent contradiction that was disillusioning to us. It was kind of like, huh, you know, a couple of big names who we'd read and liked, you know, you meet them and it's like, he's, he's really eyeing Lauren right now. I I don't know. I kind of expected a little (laughs) more (laughs) self-control. There are a couple of moments like that. Wow. And so we both were just like, let's take a break. And we're still taking that break. That was, I don't know, that was 20, I think that was 09 or something, 08, maybe 20, 2007. And um, so we came to Vashon. I was working at Whole Foods in Seattle, commuting on the ferry, because I live on an island. There's no bridge. And that was kind of brutal uh, because we're newly wed, and I, I wanted to be with my wife. And I wanted to have a family and I was gone at least 12 hours a day, but I was only getting paid for eight, wow. you know, cause yeah. the ferry was just so brutal. And, uh, so our, my two week vacation for our honeymoon became my two weeks notice. I just didn't go back, which was not <laughs> nice of me at all. <laughs> and so we, we came back to Vashon and I was out of work, uh, and, but you know, I'm kind of scrappy, like I'll get a job anywhere. I'll do anything. I'm a hard worker. We'll, we'll make it work. And so I went door to door and all, you know, 11 businesses in Vashon town, just a few, maybe 10. And one of them was a butcher shop that had opened the day before. Wow. And yeah. And I, I didn't know anything about butchery. I didn't know anything about farming, nothing, but I had worked at Whole Foods where I had developed a taste for wine because they have a pretty awesome wine selection. And uh, he was making his own wine, this this farmer butcher. And he was selling fresh meat from a case. He was selling raw milk. They were making cheese, um, all from this north end, this farm on the north end of Vashon Island. And that seemed incredible to me. And he was telling me how they make the wine. And, you know, they're crushing it with their feet. Um, they're not adding yeast. It's just ambient wild yeast and they're aging it for a long time and in Oak. And that was actually the thing that enticed me. Hmm. And so my plan was, all right, of all the places, this is the coolest one. I want to work here. Right. And so I, I basically showed up for two weeks and bugged him and I kind of just started working there. And then he's like, all right, I guess I got to pay this guy. <laughs> and we're still, you know, 
uh, in touch today, and that was I did I worked for him for exactly two years. And this I'm sorry I'm making this kind of long, but I no, it's was, interesting. Uh, it, yeah, yeah. We uh, I was I was working there. It was awesome. And one day uh, I came in from working on the farm. So I was feeding pigs. Like we were slaughtering two to three pigs a week, three to four lambs, sometimes a cow, 150 chickens milking seven cows, making cheese, making wine, and we're taking all of this and selling it at the farmer's markets in Seattle. So it was a huge multi, well, it was a small, diverse uh, enterprise. It mm. was uh, a lot of work. And uh, I didn't really get into the butchery until about nine months in. I started on the farm feeding the livestock, you know, uh, catching cows, who were bashing through people's really nice manicured yards on Bashan trying to get to their cats and uh, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, doing the slaughter, all, all of the slaughtering on the farm. And then one day I came in to pack for the farmer's markets on a Saturday. And the boss, just because the recession had hit, had, and, uh, and for other reasons, he kind of let go. He had to let go of pretty much the whole staff mm-hmm. so that there was about four of us running the whole operation. He let go of the butcher. He let, it was a restaurant also. We had a restaurant and a butcher shop. He let go of the chef, the kitchen crew, um, the butcher. And I was supposed to take butchered meat to the farmer's market the next day, and none of it had been cut. And so that's when I learned how to butcher. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, I told, I told George, the owner, I was like, all right, I, he was cooking for a full house. He was the chef that, that night because the chef was gone, and I was like, all right, I, I'm going to go butcher these pigs. And Lauren came over, and we stayed up late into the night, and I butchered my first pig or two and a couple lambs. And then we took it to the farmer's market the next day. And then I did the same thing the next week and the next week and the next week. And I really just moved into the butcher shop, starting on the farm, starting um, feeding the animals and, and slaughtering them, and then and then learned how to butcher and cure. And I kind of wanted to do things old school anyway. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I did learn from uh, getting my master's degree was how to find books and resources. Uh-huh. And so, so I, I looked up lots of peasant European methods, you know, lots of translating and uh, um, archaeology, you know, trying to find cool old ways of doing things. Wow. But uh, And I did that for exactly two years, and then we stopped and... Uh, we, we, I always say, you know, we knew that slaughter and butchery and education therein was our calling when people kept calling us on the phone. Um, there was just this demand for small-scale animal processing. And so we, we started feeling that. And I can't help but teach anything I do or get passionate about. It's actually a great favor to me that students come and listen to me talk about things because that's how I understand them. Right and get excited about them and communicate them. So that was there from the beginning too. So you guys, you guys sort of pivot out of, um, out of that butcher shop. You've, you know, you're figuring out how to do this stuff. You start researching it. What, what sparks your interest to be like, let's, let's take this and make something ourselves. Yeah. I always blame Lauren for that (laughs) in the best sense. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of, I was okay with, um, well, I think I was okay. You never really know with these things, but I was okay with getting odd jobs here and there. You know, I, I got, uh, I, I worked in a beautiful 
casting co casket company, company making coffins, simple pine coffins, a wood shop here on Vashon. Your life is uh, weird, Mary, by the way. Just <laughs> FYI, you have a very weird life, or a very yeah. irregular life, I should say. Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, that was awesome, Marion Caskets, and it, it was a great preparation, obviously, for becoming a slaughterman in a weird way. But uh, I, I got to do that for a while um, while we were starting Farmstead Meatsmith, and that was a great help and blessing in getting this going to have income. And then I worked for an excavator for a while, you know, putting in deer fence around the island and all kinds of stuff, you know, horse paddocks. Uh, but it was really Lauren pregnant with our second child, John Luke. And she said it would be a waste for you to not utilize these skills that you gained um, while working at this farm. And uh, I think that that's, it's interesting because I was perfectly willing to be like, well, yeah, we'll just do this for ourselves. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, I need a butcher shop, but you know, just for me, <laughs> just for our family <laughs> and I'll, I'll raise pigs for us and we'll cure bacon for us. But she, she wanted to share it. You know, she felt like there was richness there that um, could enhance the abundance of other people's tables. And so she saw also the potential the theology so major really, came up with that, huh? That's right. Yeah, she got her ends <laughs> all sorted out. Yeah. And, you know, we're both the children of uh, small business owners, both both sets of parents. And so, I, to be honest, I don't know if I would have stayed long as an employee anywhere. Right. I've just never known anything other than, uh, you know, creating your own thing and uh, generating your, your, your living that way. Yeah. So when it comes to the, the educational side of it, like, um, I wonder if you could speak to a little bit more about like what it is about that element that is um, so inspiring to you. Because I wonder, and I don't want to answer it for you, but, but I was thinking, so as, you know, as more like um, technological advances come in and everything, they, uh, what that also means is that we lose the thing that that advancement replaces a lot of times, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's email, I mean, uh, replaces the ability to just simply write a letter or something like that. Um, and so is part of your motivation as an educator, a sense of responsibility of, of something that could potentially be lost when it comes to this skill set? Yes. Yeah. And I think it, it, it goes two ways. There's like a, what would it be? There's like an aesthetic and a utilitarian aspect to that because a lot of the technology that has come in and made things, I wouldn't say more efficient, they have a different kind of efficiency, has also completely left behind the small scale, the domestic scale. Mm -hmm. And so looking back to these old methods, which are technologically much simpler they are also more suited to a human scale, right. like a, an individual family degree of production. And so the, the large mass production methods are actually inefficient um, relative to the needs of one family and what one family can produce. So I find all these, you know, sometimes it starts with an old tool. You find an old tool and 
use it for a while and it's a simpler tool and you use it to see what it can teach you, you know, be docile to its hints and its cues. In other words, don't try to force it to do what the modern tool does. Right. right? And, and you stumble into these efficiencies. It's serendipitous. I love it. You, you just, you don't know what's going to happen and come, you know, I can't even, it, it happens all the time. And this is where that aesthetic goal end comes in because, or I guess culinary one where I have this image in my brain of some old print of bacon, you know, that I've seen, or maybe someone somewhere in some peasant village in Europe is still producing it like their great, great grandfather did. And you just can't see anything like that anywhere. No one is producing that. Right. And I am so attracted to it. And I, I want to see what will happen if I make it not just the end result, like how it might taste, but what the lead up to it is, because there's uh, those old simple methods. They're usually, they're usually better than they ought to be because they are galvanized through generations of history, of repetition, of polishing that rock, that process, and making that thing, you know, whether it's back bacon or lardo or salami, more and better suited to the domestic scene. And then very recently, 20th century, basically, boom, we can mass produce this stuff rapidly, basically after World War II. Right. And then all of that stuff recedes into the distance and efficiency no longer means, you know, um, able management and husbandry of my resources, but I am excluded from husbandry and management of all these resources entirely. And I just cherry pick off the top as a consumer alienated from the process. Right. And that is, uh, that I don't think that's a rich way to live. I think that's, that's actually a little impoverished because you're alienated from the means that sustain the end that is your life. Mm -hmm. And in being alienated from those, you're alienated a little bit from yourself. You're estranged from the cost of your own existence and you, you know, you know yourself less, I think. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could speak more to that, I guess, because, um, cause one of the questions I, I often think about is in a sense with this birth, like you said, after whether, you know, world war two, whatever, with this birth of industrial agriculture, um, the question becomes what is lost because like, you know, forget, you know, it seems like now the arguments and the conversations all revolve around, you know, the destruction that's being done through the carbon footprint or, you know, um, the use of fossil fuels, the spraying, the GMOs, all of that. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a fan of any of that. But even if we right. put all that aside, even if we said that's not doing harm, I still feel like something has been lost with this mindset of mass production. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to what is lost as we grow in scale. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. And I, I feel like it's, um, I feel like it's a crystallized, what we lose is uh, human nature a little yeah. bit, not to be too broad, right? <laughs> but, but there was this great line, I think it's in a letter from Tolkien to one of his sons, but I, I'm having a hard time finding it again. It just stuck in my brain, but something about technology dulling the edge of human nature. Uh -huh. And I love the notion of a human being a finely honed knife, 
you know, especially in my line of work, like a sharp knife cuts things effortlessly and artfully. And uh, when you're dull, you can't do what you're made to do, you know? And uh, I think that that is, that is a great, a great loss. It's the doling of human nature. Um, and I, you know, I keep coming back and may, I think this is definitely my own bias too. this, uh, the many costs of centralized urbanization. It's really, I don't know how long it's going to take us to understand the, the shift to the great big city is in mm -hmm. human life and human culture. And I'm sure it can be done, you know, and I know it has, we've got a lot of great charcuterie from Paris, you know, the oldest city in the world and, uh, or one of them in the West, I guess. And, um, it's just, it's tricky. I feel like in an urban setting, there is maybe the, the accidental possibility. It's sort of like a, an unintended consequence. Or maybe it's intended. I don't know, but that you can be estranged from, uh, agriculture. Mm -hmm. Totally. You can live in utter isolation from agriculture. And so you can conceive of yourself as actually existing outside of a food chain. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is a fantasy. It's an utter fantasy. And that's where this, all this talk of zero footprint, it just kind of, to me, it, um, it obfuscates a little bit. It's like, our goal is not to be disembodied minds hovering harmlessly over the terrestrial plane, because that's impossible. We right. have these bodies. They need to eat. Right. They need to defecate. <laughs> they need to breed like we are part of the natural order you know no matter how high our skyscrapers are or clean our windows or reflective our iphones are like we are part of the natural order do you and uh yeah do you feel like the conversation is dominated by either your choices either factory farming and you know getting stuff from walmart or like militant veganism and that there's no that there's no bridge between those things there's no sort of like middle ground that people can live in because like for yeah. instance i'm i'm the person here that would be representative of completely divorced from the natural order shop at you know trader joe's or go to restaurants and have no idea where anything comes from and sometimes am shocked to realize that when i'm eating a piece of chicken that's a rib cage yikes <laughs> <laughs> Steve is the one that has goats and chickens and pigs and all this stuff. And I'll call him at 11 o'clock at night and he's burying a goat. And I'm like, good God, your world is so weird. So like, yeah. I, I guess, and maybe I'm trying to get too much ahead of myself. So one, I guess that middle ground between, you know, factory farming and veganism and two, like, what is a, what is a step for somebody like me? What, what, what could make me get excited about, the stuff that is obviously exciting to you and deeply meaningful to you, I guess. Yeah. I, I've thought about that. And I, I think that like anything, you know, if you start with, um, discipline, the fruits will be unlimited. And I think about this cause this, that was my path. Like, I guess I had an epiphanous moment once when I was working on the farm. And a, I was feeding the pigs. I was working all day. It was like four o'clock and I hadn't had anything, you know, no lunch. I was starving. I came into the restaurant and, um, a, 
the chef was in there and I just ran into the kitchen, grabbed a piece of bread off of uh, the cutting board and shoved it in my mouth and went out, you know, back to work. And the chef called me back in. He's like, Hey, wait, come back here. <laughs> and I was like, Oh geez, don't, don't get on me for taking food, you know? Uh, and he cut a slice of bread and then he put some really, you know, not cheap olive oil on it. And then he sprinkled some coarse salt on it and he put it in my mouth. And to me, it, it was such a big deal. It's such a simple event, but it stuck with me forever because it tasted so good. Yeah. <laughs> it really blew me away. And up to that point, you know, I'm, I'm a graduate student. Like I live off of cheap chips and salsa and cheap red wine. Like that's it. <laughs> that's all I eat. Um, so that was, that was a big deal to me. And he, it was sort of a gesture like, don't forget that you're a body. You, know? uh -huh. you have taste buds on your tongue. Um, take some time and stop being satisfied with rubbish, you know, yeah. with garbage. Don't, don't just fill the tank. You're not just feeding the beast, filling the <laughs> hole, right? Um, take some time. And I, I think that any taste worth having is worth acquiring, which means it takes a little discipline, which is a weird concept. And so that little event started me on a path where I was like, well, that was so good. What about tripe? Like, what about, um, you know, salt-cured, cold-smoked bacon? What about all these things that I have never tried before? And I would try some of them, and honestly, the first time, it's like, whoa, that's a little strong. But then you got to interrogate yourself a little bit, like, well, is it gross? Or is it just you know? new? Is it just new? Right. Yeah. And then you got to try it again. And, you know, they, they do scientific tests on this stuff. And they find that, you know, I guess it takes about two weeks, 14 days or so of trying something before you acquire a taste. You know, none of us likes the wine or beer that we sip from, you know, from our parents <laughs> when we're eight or whatever. You, you acquire that taste. Um, and so I always tell people, just try weird things. And actually discipline yourself to like them because, because maybe you should and you think you should. And I don't think that that's wrong. You know, food isn't just whatever, I, you know, anything that can move above, like Samwise Gamgee says, our, our likes and our dislikes, it elevates us a little bit mm. and it enriches our lives. Um, and you will find if, I, you know, this is like a fair warning. If you go down that path and you start trying, you know, bacon that is just mostly solid fat from a home reared pig or something, or try lardo, which is solid cured fat. Um, you'll find that you, you can't help yourself, but creep up the supply chain a little bit and, you know, purchase a whole pork shoulder somewhere and make your own sausage. Um, Cause from a single pork shoulder, you can even cure your own lardo. You could make your own cured fat back. Um, you could even make some bacon out of it. You could brine the hot and you could smoke it. <clears throat> There's a lot you can do short of putting a pig in your backyard. Though I always recommend people do that because that is very, <laughs> that is possible. I've slaughtered pigs in the city of Seattle. They are, they do not need to be free ranging animals. Benevolent confinement is actually uh, their wanted habitat in for the past 500 years that's where people have been raising them yeah so 
so really it's just so easy to be you know disconnected from your food in so many ways whether it's you know, um but but one of the elements is the you know you've mentioned the word slaughter a couple times and for a lot of people when they hear that word it just has this yeah. such a negative um you know env- uh, sur- that surrounds it um but yeah but talk about a little bit then like death is part of what we disconnect ourselves from when we remove ourselves from the food chain. And it's an important part. It's important, you know, to your point, I think understanding that is an important part of understanding our own humanity and the cycles in which we experience of life and death and sustenance and, and all of that goes with that. Um, So for you, I don't know if this is the, the angle to take, but the first time you, slaughtered an animal do you I mean do you remember that was that impressionable on you um you know I don't do it to near the scale that that you do but I I remember having a conversation with someone where I said the point that it doesn't bother me is the point that I need to stop doing it um in a sense so so how have you uh dealt with that whole part of the the entire process yeah that is a really interesting question i'm going to try not to talk about it for three hours it just is so interesting to me but um yeah i feel like the uh you know whether or not you're a passionate carnivore living on a farm or a uh, a vegan living in a city both people exist and maintain and sustain their lives on the death of other terrestrial creatures right it's a given you know the vegan is not isolated from that they might be able to indulge that fantasy but it is just a fantasy you know the production of the soy and the tofu and the vegetables they're eating is riddled with the with the death of animals and habitat uh, alterations and everything Um, so there really is no zero footprint option you know we are integrated into the food chain and with that in mind, you know, I think that you kind of need to take your place in the great circle of life, yeah. as they say in Lion King. Um, and, you know, Bufasa describes it to Simba. Per, you know, he's like, we, we eat the antelope, and then when we die, our bodies turn to grass, and the antelope eat the grass, right? Yeah. And it's, there's a little more going on than that, but, you know, the point is is still made. And uh, I the first animal I slaughtered was on the farm, and it was a lamb. And we put the lamb up on a table and it was just a knife kill, which is to this day, that's still how I slaughter lambs, just a knife, drawing the knife across the neck. And um, there are people screaming, listening to this podcast right now. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Good to know. I mean, oh man, I got to try to stay focused. There's so many things we can talk about here. uh, That was the first one I did. And I was, you know, I wasn't emotionally slaughtered uh, at that time because I was doing a job and I understood the ends, right? And actually to this day, I find that for me to be overwhelmed with emotion at the killing of an animal, to allow myself to feel guilt or shame in a way is not sensitivity or a humane move on my part. That's actually selfish. I am there at the service of the sacrifice. And what that means is I have to be deliberate 
decisive. I have to be swift and accurate in my movements. I can't be choked up mm. to execute it properly, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a really interesting journey to walk people through this in our classes where when we kill a rabbit, right. Or a duck or a lamb, you're doing the no, you're doing the animal no favor by being reticent, by not wanting to do it. Mm. There's no such thing as overkill when you're killing an animal. It's more just you don't want to think of yourself as taking the life of another thing. It's not necessarily, I would argue, that you have compassion on the thing you're killing. Because you would eat it, right, you know, if someone else killed it. Right. Um, and so I, I, I see it more as a, it's a bit of a duty, you know, it's a, it's a higher call to shelf your own experience for a minute, get yourself out of your brain and see to the job at hand. Um, and it, I won't say that that's easy and effortless. It's not. And I think there is room for reflection maybe afterwards, but in the moment you need to do it well and decisively. And to, to an unexperienced observer, that can look violent, coercive, and oppressive, and all kinds of weird stuff. But, like that know, was too thinking, easy for him. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. Absolutely. You know, and so lamb is a good example of that. I'll, I'll capture a lamb, and I lay them down on their side so that their, their feet are sticking out. And then I pull their head back so their neck is facing the sky. And I am holding them. Not, I'm not pressing down on them. It's a whole technique, but uh, I'm holding it. It's very firm. You know, I, I capture them quickly and decisively. So there's no running. There's no flight. Mm -hmm. Every step is geared towards making the kill as quick and decisive as possible. And then I lay the lamb down in such a way that if I stand up, the lamb will stay down on its side because they're, they've totally submitted. And the only reason they've submitted is because my, every movement I've made has removed from their um, from their sense the notion that they could escape and get away, which is a great favor to them, mm. because then they actually surrender, which is a crazy thing to behold. And goats will do it too, um, and and then you can take their life, and it has to be one stroke of the knife, and they'll bleed out very rapidly. And uh, if I can work with the nature of the animal, like a, a lamb or a goat, specifically being flight prey animals, right? Their, their goal is to flee predators. That's their plan A, B, you know, through Z. That's it, run. And if you deprive them of that flight, then they have no other options and they actually will surrender. And I feel like that is the best thing we can do with slaughtermen is make it less of a coercion and more of a gift, you know, if there's slaughter, if they're surrendering, there is some degree in which they're participating in the gift of themselves. And it's limited, you know, it's not conscious. It's not like us. There's a, there is a difference there. Um, but in some way we can elevate them, you know, to that, to that place where they might be giving their life as much as we're taking it. And that is, uh, that's the highest thing any terrestrial being can aspire to, you know, um, so there's, and, and that can look to someone who's never seen it before, very violent and cruel. It mm. is bloody, you know, it is. Um, in fact, you know, even think of the way that cheese is made. Cheese does not exist without the killing 
of doe-eyed beautiful calves. Doesn't happen. You know, I remember the first time I killed a veal calf. And like, how, how could you limit the impact of being able to preserve milk, which is what cheese is? We can preserve that protein, those fats, in the form of cheese. It's only been since recent refrigeration that we we drink milk at all. It was all turned into cheese and yogurt, right? right. And that only happens when you slaughter the calf. And you've got to do it before the calf even grazes. So the calf is less than a week old. And they're the cutest little animals you've ever seen, right? And I remember slaughtering veal calf, and it was such a, I feel like I was, um... oh, good. You guys can still hear me down here, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Just want to make sure. Uh, it was, I felt like I was witnessing it, the birth, you know, like representing the birth of uh, Western culture and even other cultures because cheese is so important. And I slaughtered this calf and I was eviscerating it. And inside the calf is the rennet stomach. When calves are born, they're not ruminants like their adult parents. They, they have one, they only use one stomach. Same with goats, right? The goats start eating green much sooner, but the calves will, they nurse their mommy with their, their neck craned in such a way that it shoots the milk past their two chambers of their stomachs that are never used and right into their rennet stomach. They're actually cheeseivores. They only eat cheese <laughs> and they're making it in their stomach. And that's where the enzyme comes from that makes all cheese. Yes, you can get some from cardoons and stuff, and you can find these vegetarian lab-made, you know, substitutes. But the original rennet is in the stomach of the calf. So if you're going to preserve mama's cheese, you got to go get that rennet, that enzyme. And I, I opened up this rennet stomach, and guess what I found in it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it looked like um, ricotta. And it even tasted like ricotta cheese. I tried some. And it, it smelled like feta. It was very rich and intense and, and acrid in its aroma. Um, but you take that rennet stomach and you salt it and you cure it. And then you cut off a little piece and you put it in your cheese vat to precipitate the curd and make your cheese and preserve your milk. Um, but that was just such an amazing experience to me. And it was just another example of how we, we cannot extricate ourselves. If you want to eat cheese, Right. The cost of the cheese are the lives of calves. And these, these costs are real. And uh, I think that the more we engage with them, the less able we are to indulge in fantasies about our, I don't know, our shallow maudlin harmlessness, you know. Well, even... We're, we're actually part of it. Yeah, and, you know, and you mentioned... Um, you know, not to speak to any, whatever your diet is, but even like it, it's ignorant to think that death is not involved within the cycle, right. you know? And so um, th there is this harshness to, to all of this that, you know, there, there's some harshness to this thing that we participate in. And, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I hope this doesn't sound wrong. I mean, I don't want to come across as just, you know, like, you know, complaining or whatever, but like sometimes I get, um, I, I, there's like this annoyance to me, uh, or I get annoyed when I like with the whole, with the green movement and like, I'm, I'm couldn't be more part of it, but, yeah. and I, but what struck me, uh, finally is to why it annoyed me a little bit is because like 
if you're only bringing your own grocery bag to the store, if you're only using a reusable straw, things like that, you still haven't indulged in the messiness of the relationship that needs healed. And so, yeah. like, the, to reconnect means to heal the relationship. And that need, you need to be immersed in that. If you, if you don't experience the harshness of it, I don't know that you can experience a true healing uh, of it. Does that, does that make sense at all? I, absolutely, yeah. I yeah, mean, I feel like- well, sorry, but even if you're just growing produce, you know, like that means pulling weeds, that means getting bit by ants that, you know, um, and animals don't listen to you all the time. You know, they go where they're not supposed to. And there, there is just this struggle that that is included in the reconnection and healing of of the way in which we are in the world, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And I. I think I feel the same way, you know, I think that there is this unfortunate strain in the green movement, you know, so-called that is um, anti-human and the, the best ecological vision is, is the untouched wilderness, right? Mm. Which is, which is actually unnatural. Um, we, we are actually part of nature, believe it or not, you know, we're, at, we're actually part of it. And I think of this as, uh, you know, you, you think of domestication of livestock, even as an example, right, um, of how in this game we are. And we have this notion that domestication is an impoverishment of natural, uh, pure wildness, right? And that wildness is a higher form of existence. It's a better way to to be on this planet. And that is not what humans do to a landscape. They, they bring order. You look at, you know, uh, Europe, look at the South of England. And what do you see? You see this humans fully integrated into the ecology. You see 10, five acre paddocks of grass bordered by stone walls, right? It's a grid and it's very fruitful. And it's pasture, and it used to be primeval forest. It used to be forest, but it's been completely deforested. You know, I don't know for seven hundred years or something, five hundred years—a long time. Um, and you know, one interpretation of that is that oh, this has been denuded, this has been clear cut, this has been destroyed, the natural habitat. But if, but even on their own terms, you're actually sequestering more carbon with the pasture grass. This is an integrated ecology. These are people that are ideally taking food from the land that's just within eyeshot around them. We don't, they didn't need a humongous transportation system to, to ship their food all over the place. And I even think about that with like, you know, the wolf to the dog path, you know. I'm not so sure that a, a border collie is a hindered wolf is a handicapped wolf, right? Yeah. Border collies almost understand English words when they're born. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's amazing the, the, the sense of uh, domestication that they can take on. And when you think about it, isn't that a kind of fulfillment of their nature? You know, hmm. look at how successful they are. Look at how successful all livestock are as uh, 
as their populations grow, the best way to help a particular species is to start eating it. And then, and then they become more successful in the globe than they ever would be. And they never suffer death of old age and disease, if we can help it, right, mm. in, in the best case. Um, and you think of sheep growing wool. If you don't shear a sheep, it will die. If you don't milk a cow, she can't produce it. She, she produces too much milk for her calf. She will die. You know, we're, we're in it with these domesticated livestock inextricably. We've got to, we can't just, you know, create them genetically and then abandon them to the, to the wild and pretend like it's good for them. Yeah. Do you think, um, and I know this would be a really long answer, but, but do you think, um, how much of that is that, that we pushed the snowball off the top of the hill and now we're stuck in what we started when it comes to domestication um, versus, because like, like you were saying, obviously the, you know, the, the answer is not just to simply release all the, the lap dogs right. back into the, to the wild, you know, that wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't go very well. But um, I mean, do you, do you think that over domestication has, has become a problem that we now are forced to deal with and forced to manage um, in a way that maybe we, we had overextended ourselves in that process? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, um, you can definitely find examples of that. They're yeah. very clear. Like, you know, there's a, there's a certain pig that has been selected for to be so lean that it has departed and, and double muscled. So it's got these two traits and the double muscling at least is, is a disorder, right? But because we're so good at breeding, we can actually put that into each pig. Um, and so consequently, we have these pigs that exist with a disorder as a breed. That's part of the standard double muscled, super lean. Consequently, they uh, are prone as an unintended consequence to panic. And um, they they can die from stress very easily, you know, just a minimal sti- uh, overstimulation and and they'll 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 die. They can't handle the stress. And so there's clearly examples of that when, you know, we decide that genetics are something that we can extract, right, as a resource, and that a pork, a pig is a protein unit. And the goal of that protein unit is to maximize the protein and minimize the fat yield. Um, but I think the, the other opposite end of that, which would be veganism, is also a, is, is also a kind, another kind of vice. And of course, like the median would be where the virtue is, which is rather than coercing nature and animals to extract the resource we need, and then rather than just ignoring them and pretending like we don't actually exist in nature with bodies, but more as disembodied consciences, making sure everything is moral and good. We're in the middle where I think we need to cultivate biology, you know? And to cultivate your garden, you know, it's a, it's a docile process. You're not just imposing your vision. You have to work with the seasons. You have to work with the soil, with the natural limitations, with what will grow in your area. You have to take your cues from the raw material. You can't just impose your um, abstract imagination. Now, if you get enough technological power, then you kind of can start doing that. And there, the consequences just become more and more unintended and more and more drastic. But um, 
again, that's, that's that excessive vice of extraction. But, but in the middle, where we take our cues from nature itself. And then, you know, I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge yourself as being part of it. So your interaction with the natural resources is not an exception to the rule. That is the rule. That's the norm. You know, you're an eating thing. You're part of them. You're part of it. So your job is to cultivate it. Yeah. So I want to know outside of, you know, all the philosophizing about it, because I, I think it's intensely interesting, but how does that boil down to like, what did you do this morning? Yeah. <laughs> uh, good question. <clears throat> or yesterday morning. What's, what's a day in your life look like is, is I guess what I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, Not just in the business, but in your family life. And how does this kind of play out personally? Because you have multiple children, correct? I have six kids. (laughs) Yes. Holy smokes. (laughs) Wallace, Johnny, Simon, Mary, Beatrice, and Therese. Yeah, three boys and three girls. And um, that's a really good question. And for us, you know, well, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I slaughtered 57 poultry. And I think 30 or so of them were ducks and the rest were chickens. And um, the guy I I slaughter them for wants the ducks to have a certain appearance because they look good in the case, which I love. You know, he he wants them to have their heads and their feet, their feet on, which is great. I love I love the idea of that. You know, this is a duck. You're buying a duck. Right. (laughs) We're not going to remove the duckness. So, so you can't tell that it was an animal with eyes and a face and everything. No, the head's on there, and it has culinary value. You can make stock out of the heads and feet to, to get the full harvest from that animal. So I love that. Now, that means you don't want the neck to be mangled. And that's usually where you would deliver the kill on a duck is you would cut its jugular arteries, and it bleeds out. Now, the rest of the processing can open up that wound, and it can look unappetizing you know you scald and then you pluck the duck and it can really kind of mangle the head and maybe the head will even fall off and now you kind of lost it so you want to bleed the duck out from inside the mouth (laughs) we're getting real graphic here but that that's the method you actually open its mouth and you go in there and you cut its artery and it bleeds out of its mouth now that that works to, to to get the end product that's desired. And it's even a good end product, right? Head intact. We're not just going to throw away the heads. The duck gave up its head. You should cook it and eat it. It's delicious. Um, but the means to get there, you know, it's, uh, how, I, I wish it was a little more humane. You know, I don't want this duck just, just bleeding out of its mouth. It takes a couple minutes and it just doesn't feel right. I feel like we could do better. And so I need, I wanted to figure out a way that we could, we could piff, we could take the brain out. So it doesn't feel the bleeding out of the mouth. And I found this cool tool where I can puncture the back of the skull and immediately lights out, right? I mean, you hit the brain, lights are out. And then I can go into the mouth and bleed out the duck. And that was this process that I engaged all the time trying to think of how can I be docile to the biology of this duck? It has a central nervous system. How can I be more humane and take that out first before we bleed it out. And you actually have to observe the duck rather than just imposing our idea on it and extracting the protein from it that we desire. Um, so 
And that takes a docility. Like I say, you, you have to observe the nature of the animal. This is why I shoot pigs in the head. I don't just stick them because they're so cerebral. They're intensely, um, they're very intelligent. So you want to take out the central processing unit first, take out the brain, and then you can bleed them out. It's also why I don't separate the pig I'm killing from its buddies because they are a sounder. They are a group of pigs. Their security comes from being with other pigs. And if you ever try to separate one pig from its buddies in order to kill it, you might notice it is impossible. They hate it. They'll yell. They'll scream. They don't like being manhandled. They hate that. Um, they also don't fear death. And you wouldn't know this unless you observe and are receptive to the cues that you're giving. You know, they're, we tend to overestimate their humanity and underestimate their intelligence. And you gotta, you take it when, right when they're next to their buddies and they'll drop to the ground. The other pigs might jump at the rifle a little bit, but then they know the other pig is dead. They're just not bothered by that. They will, they'll even eat the blood from the pig that you drag out to continue harvesting. Um, and so all of those I think are fruits of trying to be docile and get my cues from the raw material, from the pig itself, from the duck and develop an approach that is, it's not the excess of extraction and it's not, you know, um, the other excess of just ignoring the process, but trying to find that middle ground of we're going to cultivate this and be part of this process in a good way. And then, yeah, I don't know. How does that work out in my family day to day? I mean, that's how we harvest all of our pigs. The way I cure my bacon um, is, is also docile. We take a lot of cues from our nose when it comes to cured meats and the meats that we prepare. Um, your nose, you have this sniffer right above your eater that is this perfect test for what should go in the eater. And uh, it's, a really, it's a really solid one. Um, but we had bacon from our pigs this morning. We had bread that my wife made for breakfast. And, uh, you know, we didn't grow the wheat or anything. We buy wheat. Um, and we had eggs from our ducks. We have a flock of, of ducks. And um, so I don't know if that fits into the philosophy, but that, that's yeah. what happened this morning. Have you found a way to, um, okay, with six children, the busyness of your schedule, do you... Do all eight of you sit down at the dinner table at night? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, but it, it we, we, we all sit down for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. And it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm saying that with like sweat on my brow. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really is. That is one of the chief battles that we pick in our day and in our week. Yeah. It really is. Like, that's no small thing for us to, to make that happen. So, you know, I'm not going to say it's like, Oh yeah, everyone needs to sit down as a family and eat together every single meal. You know, it, it's hard. Um, it's good. I find that everything happens around the meal. You know, that's how we learn to be with other people. All, all the kids have their chores. They have to set the table. Um, and they have to do the cleanup. And before you know it, you look back on your day. It's like, wow, the main thing we did today was have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, my oldest is nine, so they're all, well, he's actually going to be 10 just uh, tomorrow, turning 10 tomorrow. Um, wow. But uh, that's, that's a huge part of the day. It's huge. 
And then because they're young, you know, they, they need snacks in between. They're like hobbits. Breakfast <laughs> and lunch, lunch and dinner. They need snacks. Um, are you in your kitchen right now? Is this what you're, are you in your house right now? This is my butcher shop. Okay. Yeah. For the people that are listening to ours, we're, we're Skyping for him as well. So we're, we're looking at him in his, uh, in his butcher shop and there's hanging meats everywhere. Yeah. It's awesome. I do. I do have a stove in here right behind me. Can't quite see it, but we cook in here. This is where the classes happen. We've got bacon and hams and pancetta and copa hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. All right. Well, we won't. Uh, we don't want to keep you too long, but we just can shift gears and uh, a little sure. bit. We like to just kind of go different directions at the end, and um, we don't necessarily call it a speed round, but just ask you a few more random yeah. questions. So, um, what talent do you not have that you wish you had, or what secret talent do you have that uh, you could reveal? Yeah. yeah. Good one. So I, I wish I had the talent for um, working with com- computers because <laughs> <laughs> that's a signi- that is a significant part of my business. And it's, so that is immediately the first thing that jumps to my brain. And to, to work with them in the mood of being creatively inspired. <laughs> so not just be competent, but be like, oh, I'm enjoying this, and it's stimulating my creative impulse. Right. <laughs> so, because I have to, you know, that's so that's the talent I wish I had. I'm still working on it. I'm still, I, I got to discipline and, and learn that language. So yeah. There's a talent I could have that one. All that's right. the one I want right there. Well, give us a, uh, give us a, a guilty pleasure of yours. I, I doubt that, I don't picture you as the type to be, I don't know, binge-watching, um, I don't know, romantic comedies or friends or something that, I mean, give us some, well, maybe that surprise us. What is, what, what's a guilty pleasure? I so badly yeah. want you to say little Caesar's pizza or something right now. <laughs> it would just delight me. I've, I've got, I've got too many of those. Um, I would say that, uh, late night, late night snacks. I have this snack that I scrounge up. It's horrible. Uh, raw onion, <laughs> sriracha (laughs) a piece of sharp cheddar and a tortilla chip i make a little sandwich of the onion the sriracha the sharp cheddar and the chip and man i can almost go through a whole bag of that it's horrible i feel horrible for your wife right at bedtime that's a bad plan yeah you're right (laughs) that's that's poor yeah that is so i i try not to do that too often um yeah, that's that's not a good one. There is no chance of Joseph responding with "What a coincidence!" Yeah, oh yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, there's been nothing relatable to me in this entire podcast. Like, there's been not one thing that I'm like, "Ah, oh, me too." That's I also kill things. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So, uh, give us give us a recommendation. Uh, whether it's a it's a book you're into, a podcast maybe, or or a, a, sh- a movie, or something that you've been into recently that you've discovered, um, uh, give us a recommendation. Yeah, good one. Well, I would say, my, kind of my perennial. I'm trying to see if I have it in here right now. Yeah, is a, a book that I recommend to everybody. 
It's by a woman named Jane Grigson. And it's G-R-I-G-S-O-N, Jane Grigson. All of her books, actually, I could just recommend all of them. She, she wrote this book called Charcuterie and French Pork Cookery. And I know it sounds esoteric, but <laughs> she has this thing where she's a British woman in the 60s who can write real well. And I, I can read her stuff just for pleasure. It's so winsome. It's so enjoyable. And it is so unapologetically domestic. I don't know where we got the idea that the home is like a prison or it's for stupid people to not exercise their creativity and all of their gifts. It's like, have you ever tried living at home with a family <laughs> and, and eating well and, and farming and raising your food? Like that is the opposite of boring that. I mean, I tell people I aspire to be uh, a 19th century housewife. Like those, that <laughs> those women were amazing. And, and Jane Grigson is one of those. So, um, she writes really well. She lived with her family in rural France for a while in a peasant village. You know, they had, uh, you know, uh, the, the prerequisite livestock, a donkey, a couple of geese and a pig and a little laying flock. And that's like what your neighbors tell you, you need to get to survive here. And, uh, she, she raised her children there, you know, sent them to school in that area. And she basically assimilated, recorded everything that they did and, and how to cook every single part of the pig in the most winsome, delicious, and accessible manner possible. So I, I just love her stuff. Jane Grigson. Love it. Yeah. Well, the, the way we end every podcast to kind of lighten up is, uh, and this does not, to give it a, uh, just to soothe some fears, this does not have to be a funny story or anything like that, but tell us a time that you've laughed the hardest. It can be recent. It can be the hardest you've ever laughed. Just give us something that would be funny from your life. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good one. Can be a church guess, laugh, kids. Yeah, that that would have to be um You know what? The last time was Beatrice. She's uh right now she's 3, but when she was about gosh, she's so cute. When she was about 11 months old, she would tell us jokes, I swear. <laughs> it's weird. And you know, our, our little girl now, Therese, who is uh, also 11 months old, she's starting to do it too. We, Our daughters, they have this humor. And then my second son, Johnny, also is just, oh my gosh, he's got some crazy humor going on. But she, I, I can't even describe to you the joke. I don't know how 11-month-old can tell a joke, but she can't. She was watching us and she would pause. And then she would do this little face thing with her eyes. She'd bat her eyes, and we would lose it. We would be on the ground. And, and then she would wait until she, we were done. Oh, yeah. And she'd look at us, and she'd do it again. Uh, she's like, i playing these folks like a fiddle. I got this. You're in trouble. But that I, it was so hilarious because it was, almost, it was so subtle. You know how humor yep. is like you can't explain a joke to someone uh, that is learning the language. Like that's the last thing they learn. Um, you can't ever really explain a joke, but she, she was somehow joking on her cuteness. Like that was the joke. That's the bit. Yeah. And, and our, 
like pathetic inability to resist her. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was actually the joke. Yes. And I don't know how she understood that, but man, she did. She got us good that night. I've I've got a three year old that's currently doing that. His newest bit is I unlock my car and my stupid remote on my car won't work. And so I unlock it from the door and then by the time I get to his thing, he's locked it. He's three years old. <laughs> and and I, and I will give him seven-minute speeches of, buddy, I know you think this is funny. It is funny. Please don't do it. And he will, he, he will look straight-faced forward in the car after he's already done it and wait until I try to pull the door handle, and then he looks over at me. And it, it just destroys me. It is – I hate how much it makes me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Dude, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I mean, it could not be more interesting and unique. And uh, the world needs more people like you. And I, I think there's this big cognitive dissonance between obviously what's on our plate and how it got there. And so none of us really want to think about the process of what it takes. But there is something even, I mean, there's something obviously so uniquely ethical about what you're doing and how it brings to consciousness how things came to be for us. And so anyway, it's very inspiring to me and challenging in a very real way. Steve will uh, keep reminding me of this so that I will stop eating Chick-fil-A every day and, you know, not thinking about anything. So yeah. Anyway. And, and people really need to check out, um, you know, your YouTube videos, farmstead meat is farmstead meat Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. They really, you guys just have this, this beautiful presentation to the way that you, you do things that's, um, you know, it captivates you in a, in a, in a unique way to, it draws you into it, um, because of the, the beauty around it. I mean, you're, you're not just cutting meat. You're, you're creating this holistic, um, experience. So, um, definitely recommend people checking that out. Awesome, yeah, that, man. That was, that was one of the things that startled me was how beautiful it is to just have a backyard, small farm and to engage in harvesting your own food. Yeah. It can actually be very aesthetically gratifying. Yeah. So awesome, thanks. man. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brandon. All right. Thank you guys. Yeah, man. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.